So good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome. It's great to see such a great crowd, and also great to uh, great to hear that we have a great crowd online. Um, my name is uh, Frank O'Sullivan. Um, I'm director of research at MIT's Energy Initiative and uh, a non-resident senior associate here at uh, CSIS. And um, it's my great pleasure this morning to be here to be able to introduce this session on the, the new energy outlook uh, from, uh, from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, clearly, we're kind of at a point in, uh, in kind of our energy transition, if you wish, that's uh, particularly dynamic, particularly exciting with respect to the suite of new technologies that are becoming available, their cost competitiveness, their juxtaposition with the existing system, uh, and a whole host of other regulatory and commercial dynamics. And I think it's fair to say that certainly I and many of my colleagues um, really like to look to Bloomberg and the work that uh, Seb and his colleagues do in terms of kind of crafting a future outlook for how the system is likely to evolve. And uh, this year, for the first time, the new energy outlook goes to 2050. Uh, they've added uh, 10 more years to the effort. I commend your ambition. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think that's, that's entirely appropriate. We're clearly seeing kind of momentum uh, in the transition in the system. I think we need to kind of look to that longer point of view. So with that, let me introduce uh, our speaker, uh, Seb uh, Henbest. Seb is uh, the lead author for the New Energy Outlook um, and, uh, and head of Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, for Europe, the Middle East, and, uh, and, uh, and Africa. Um, Seb, we're going to turn it over to you look forward to your comments and certainly look forward to a great discussion afterwards. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Uh, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, I know you're all busy and hopefully this is going to be worth your time. Uh, we put a lot of energy and effort into this ourselves every year. It takes about nine months to produce. Uh, 65 analysts who spend a considerable amount of time on it uh, from our offices around the world and we hope uh, even for those who've been playing along with us for a few years now and, and may know some of the gist of, of, of our message, uh, that there's new stuff in the New Energy Outlook 2018 that will surprise, uh, maybe even intimidate, uh, but hopefully is uh, food for thought. So thank you first to, um, to Sarah, uh, who can't be here today, but Lisa, Frank, and CSIS for hosting us. Uh, it's an absolute thrill, especially as someone from far away in South Australia, to be able to be here and talk to you all today. So just one slide on an introduction to what we do and how we think about the world. Um, many of you will understand uh, the focus areas of uh, BNEF from the top left-hand quadrant there on the, um, on the clean energy uh, and technology work. But we've broadened out what we do very much these days. And so we're covering a lot more ground. And a lot of these areas all connect together. So our job is in many ways to try and uh, say something new, but also to connect the dots between uh, all these different areas. So there's some areas here that, are, uh, that we're working on at the moment that have had a material impact on our outlook this year um, as we've tried to uh, pull those points in the system together. And as I said, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. I'm the lead author, but I didn't write it all. I'm the lead author, but I didn't crunch all the models. Um, and uh, I get to stand up here and, and essentially be a mouthpiece for the work of a number of people, uh, a number of very smart people, and uh, it is a culmination in many ways, not of everything we do, but a large amount of what we do every year that can feed into this work and hopefully say something meaningful um, about 
uh, about the future of electricity. So I'm going to start with a couple of slides that have dot points and words, and I promise there'll be very few of these. Uh, but to start off with, I want to explain what this is, and therefore also what it's not. And I hope that will help you to make sense of the, the pictures and the data that I'm, I'm going to show for the rest of the presentation. So this is a global effort, as I said. We do detailed country-level bottom-up modelling of actually 22 countries uh, and their electricity systems. It's a fundamentals-based analysis. So we're starting with demand, both the total of amount of demand out there, we take a view on that, and also the demand profiles, seasonal intraday profiles and how they might evolve. And then we use the combination of what's out there in the world today, a pipeline of plants that might get built to meet demand in the near term uh, based on our uh, database of such plants. And then we start to model in a meaningful way how demand might get met into the long term. And that is a least cost optimization exercise. We're not taking prices in the market today and deciding who's got an economic incentive to build a plant. We're saying, what is the configuration of technologies that meets demand at least cost into the future with all the considerations and caveats that we have to uh, make for an electricity market? And the final point here is that this exercise is designed to extract policy which may be an anathema here in Washington, but extract policy and understand the underlying economics, on top of which policy will be overlaid. So we hope that's a useful set of signals to people who are making policy decisions and thinking about the policy implications of some of this. Um, so we don't add new subsidies or new policy targets. The Paris targets aren't included in this. The Clean Power Plan or former Clean Power Plan is not included in this, but we can say something about our ability to achieve these targets based on the numbers that we pull out. And every year we try and make it better. This is a slide I showed last year. Uh, these are the sorts of things we're spending time and energy uh, on. You can read down that list. We made it bigger. Uh, we had some more work on batteries. We updated a lot of our fuel prices and technology assumptions, which we do every year. And this is what that list looks like for 2018. Um, of course, we refresh our inputs. That's part of the gig. Uh, consumer adoption modeling, fuel prices, technology cost curves. We now go to 2050 um, and uh, we uh, have some pretty interesting insights that come out the back of those extra 10 years. We've created a new modelling platform to capture seasonal extremes, to help answer that question of what do we do when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. Uh, we've incorporated air conditioning demand in a lot of developing countries, which is a material uh, change to profiles as well as uh, overall demand. Um, we've got a lot more work on batteries in this outlook, and I'll let it speak for itself um, as we go through the slides. We've broken out peaker gas plants, that small, flexible, um, low efficiency gas plants as a, as a new class, aside from large scale combined cycle gas plants, which we think is a, an important distinction to make. And finally, for the first time, we've put a lot of this online. So for those who can see all our work already um, on our website, we've now got a digital viewer. You can drill through countries and sectors and, and have a look at the, the, the underlying results. So what I'm doing today really is trying to take a high level view and extract a set of key messages from this work. Uh, as I said, there's a lot of bottom up detail, but we could be here all day going through that. So I'm gonna try and pull out, um, it turns out I've got nine key messages this year. I'm gonna read through this list and we're gonna go through to each one of these in turn and, and flesh them out. The first is uh, maybe not so controversial for those who've seen our, re our previous outlooks is that cheap renewable energy uh, and batteries fundamentally reshape the electricity system. And because we've gone to 2050, we've been able to pull out this, this piffy phrase of 50 by 50, which is 50% wind and solar by 2050 as a global average for electricity generation. 
Feeding into that, of course, is solar and wind technology. And our claim is that they've already won the race for bulk cheap electricity. It just hasn't finished playing out yet. And the outlook allows that to play out over the next 33 years. Uh, as I mentioned, batteries before, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, a big question is what can batteries do to integrate more of these cheap technologies? Um, for gas, and a very important topic in this part of the world, but globally we think it's about value rather than volume. For small-scale PV and batteries that households and businesses might, uh, might erect, uh, we think that businesses are actually going to drive volume here, and they have a much more compelling proposition than households in terms of behind-the-meter uh, capacity. Um, in terms of consumers, electric vehicles and air conditioning uh, helps renewables go deeper. My favorite on this list is the third to last, which is that backup and containment are a feature, not a bug, of a future electricity system. I hope I can defend that. Finally, coal is the biggest loser in the outlook worldwide. And the last point is about emissions, two degrees, and the role of gas. So let's start at the very top. This is the chart going back to 1970 and through uh, the length of our outlook uh, for electricity generation worldwide. And we can see that by 2050, that's about 50%. We, we cheated a little bit, it's only 48%, but 48%, 48 by 50 didn't sound as good. But what this picture shows is one where we're moving today from two-thirds fossil fuels to one that's two-thirds renewable energy uh, by 2050. A world where we have roughly two-thirds renewable energy, but under a third fossil fuels, moving from 63% of the mix today uh, down to 29% uh, in 2050. And in terms of generating capacity, this is a fundamental shift. Um, we think there's about 57% increase in electricity demand over this period. And this means more than a doubling of installed capacity worldwide, which again is a feature, not a bug. 79% uh, of the new generating capacity we think comes online is renewable. 81% is zero carbon. And this picture paints a 17-fold increase in the amount of PV in the world in megawatt terms, and a six-fold increase in the amount of wind in the world in megawatt terms. Such that you can see the system on the right is one that where we are building the electricity mix around these variable technologies rather than them adding on uh, to the outside. In investment terms, this is 11.5 trillion in total investment in new power generating assets. 86% um, of that zero carbon, uh, a bunch of that going to wind and solar. Um, and the interesting thing here is that as costs come down for these technologies, we're getting more capacity in the ground for every dollar invested. So by 2030, we think we get twice as many megawatts for every dollar installed of wind and solar. By 2050, that number is four times. So four times as many megawatts for every dollar invested by 2050. And the right-hand side chart there is showing batteries. We think it's around half a trillion. That's our estimate this year. This is a fast-moving space. Maybe next year, that number looks a little different. But interestingly, um, Almost 45% of that we think is consumer investment. It's households and businesses making these decisions. And this, again, is over the next uh, 33 years. The final slide on this first point is about where all this activity happens. This should be no surprise to anyone looking at electricity demand growth. It's all in Asia Pacific. Um, and that's where we see most investment. Um, China and India in particular, China invests uh, about almost 50% of what we see in Asia Pacific, which is almost half of, of, of the rest of the world, uh, or as much as the rest of the world uh, combined. So they're the high level numbers to start with. Now let's talk about wind and solar. And 
we focus on these technologies because they're part of a set of technologies that we think behave differently to the way energy technologies of the past behave. And this is because of the way they're manufactured. We're talking about large manufacturing processes with thousands of units punched out day in, day out in factories um, where we're getting economies of scale and incremental innovation that is the same sort of incremental innovation we've seen in consumer electronics, for example, which is very different to the innovation and the incremental efficiency gains and cost declines that we might see in large mechanical, in mechanical infrastructure of the past. In other words, it just gets cheaper faster than those things and eventually um, it gets competitive and crosses over. So let's start with what I think is probably the most important data set in energy economics today, arguably. This is the solar PV module experience curve. And what it shows is for every doubling of capacity, a 28.5% reduction in the cost of manufacturing a solar PV module. This data set goes back to the space program. Uh, our current 2018 estimate is in there, which captures the uh, recent policy revisions in China that we think will put um, increased downward pressure on price before the, the year is out. Um, but what this also suggests is if we map this forward that we might see another 71% reduction in the price of PV by 2050. And part of the, the, the way we use this curve is top-down to inform these long-term views, but we also have to corroborate that with some bottom-up thinking and some bottom-up analysis. And our technology people um, have been able to produce this chart recently, which is actually looking component by component of the module where we think we're going to find cost savings between now and actually it's our end of 2018 price and 2025. We can't do this all the way to 2050, but it hopefully gives people some confidence that we can corroborate these statistical relationships with some bottom-up um, evidence uh, as well. So PV is coming down in price and coming down very rapidly. So is wind, not as steeply, but this is about a 10.5% experience curve for the cost of wind turbines. So that's the dollar per megawatt uh, price of wind. Um, it's a shorter time series uh, that we work from. But it's also pretty robust. And this is the cost per unit. And those units, of course, are changing. The machine that we built five years ago is very different from the machine that gets built today and will be different again from the machine that gets built in the future. And one of the ways we can capture this is by looking at the effectiveness that each megawatt of wind has in extracting energy from the wind field. So how much energy can it pull per megawatt? And this can be captured in capacity factors. And we can see over time that capacity factors go up. We're getting better at this. This is a combination of maybe bigger turbines, placing them more effectively in the wind field, um, using new, new uh, data acquisition technologies and big data to analyze performance of these machines and not just feed back into the next generation, but also improve operation and maintenance efficiency and reduce costs today. So wind is interesting mostly because of how these machines are changing, not so much about how we're getting cheaper at producing every megawatt. But if we take these sort of technology cost curves and we add in assumptions about financing, assumptions about balance of plant costs, assumptions about operation costs, we can produce a dollar per megawatt hour levelized cost of energy. Now, People criticize this measure because it's not the most perfect measure, but it's very useful. And when we use it, we use it in terms of bulk electricity. And that means averaged across a year, and actually averaged across the lifetime of the plant, in terms of the number of run hours that plant might have over its lifetime, and the cost of putting it in the ground. What is the cost per unit of energy, the dollar per megawatt hour cost? And if we think about these trends going forward, we can also map this calculation forward. 
And if you believe the logic that more manufacturing capacity is going to push down the price of this technology, which will feed through into total project costs, then it's maybe not surprising that the all-in project cost declines to a point where we cross over the economics, or the economics cross over, such that it gets cheaper to make these things than to do um, coal, gas, or other more conventional technologies. So we can extract two tipping points in these economics. And for those who were here last year, you'll recognize this. We've updated the numbers, but it's the same argument. And the first argument is that on a new versus new basis, is it cheaper to build a wind farm or build a, a gas plant in a, particular, in a particular country in a particular year? And this is the picture we can paint for China. Last year, I would have stood up here and said, today in China, the cheapest megawatt hour of electricity is a new coal-fired power station. But in a few years' time, that's probably going to be wind and solar. Even over the last year, we can now say that best-in-class wind and the best-in-class solar is as cheap or cheaper than a new coal-fired power station in terms of dollar per megawatt hour electricity cost. And over time, it just gets better and better. And one of the reasons the, the, the black line and the gray line go up a little bit here rather than down, as you might expect, um, is partly to do with fuel prices feeding in there and fuel price assumptions that are meaningful, but also because we don't assume some fixed capacity factor for these plants. These charts emerge from the modeling, they're not inputs. And that means that over time, as more renewables come onto these systems, the run hours of these large plants starts to decline, which increases their new build all-in cost. And you'll see these numbers flat or going up a little bit in a lot of places around the world as a result of that. So taking what it says in the packet in terms of a coal plant running at 85% capacity or a gas fire plant running at 75% capacity is a risk, we think. This is the picture for the US. Again, this time last year, what I've stood and said, the cheapest new megawatt hour of electricity is a new gas plant, but pretty soon wind and solar are catching up, first wind, then solar. And again, I can say today that in the US, best-in-class wind, best-in-class solar are going to be as competitive as a new build gas plant with cheap US gas prices. And that only gets better over time. And Japan, the most expensive renewables in the world, um, coal is the cheapest new megawatt hour of electricity today in Japan. We think that by 2025 that starts to change as the subsidy regimes that are keeping renewable energy costs high um, in that country unwind. And there's no reason in our mind why PV should cost so much more in Japan. Wind, maybe. And we can see our wind curves take a lot longer to cross coal on that chart. And in India, this time last year we said coal was the cheapest megawatt hour, new megawatt hour, by quite a margin. And over the last year, we've seen an astronomical drop in project prices. And while they're not reflected here, those project prices have been around $30 a megawatt hour, sub $30 a megawatt hour, which we think is probably too cheap. At $40 a megawatt hour, that's competitive with new coal in India. So the story of, that we've been telling for the last few years of coal and India and what that means for emissions is increasingly looking less certain because these technologies are now available in that country at, low, at much lower cost. The second tipping point is when it gets really interesting. If we believe that on a new build basis, these new technologies get cheaper, then the logic of that extends that if they keep getting cheaper, they're going to get cheaper than running the existing fossil fuel fleet at some point. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at first when that happens before we try and work out what it means. This is a picture for Germany. There's a bit of messiness in the next, um, in the next sort of five to 10 years. But let's just say by 2030, a new build wind or solar park in Germany gets cheaper than running existing hard coal plants in Germany. Not the lignite, but the hard coal plants in Germany. In China, that, those lines cross in the late 2020s towards 2030. In the US, 
it gets cheaper to build and run a new wind or solar PV on average in the US than operate your existing gas plant by 2027, 2028, let, for round figures, let's just say 2030. That suggests to us that the plants being built today, new, are gonna feel some sort of economic pressure from these new technologies within the next 10 or so years. And if we think they have a 35 year lifespan, that's a pretty complicated picture to paint. And in India, where operational coal is really cheap, maybe these lines don't cross. In Australia, those lines don't cross either, and it's very hard to see the economics of renewables force coal out of the mix in some of these countries in the absence of, of policy intervention uh, to do that. So what these charts tell me is very simply that it's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how these technologies disrupt electricity systems all over the world. And our job in the Energy Outlook is to try and understand when and so what as a result of that. So let's keep moving down a list of key messages and let's talk about batteries for when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And let's start with some data. These are the weighted average battery uh, pack prices that we survey from the market every year. This recent survey was done at the end of 2017, and it shows roughly 80% drop uh, since 2010. That's roughly an 18% learning rate. So that's as manufacturing capacity rises, um, we see this sort of cost reduction. It's not as steep as PV, it's steeper than wind, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, and if we push that forward uh, in time, we can start to get an idea of how cheap batteries might be. Now why lithium-ion batteries are particularly interesting is because they have a particular symbiotic relationship with the transport industry. Um, and it is, put very simply, the volumes of manufacturing that the, the electric vehicle industry is gonna put onto the ground will have a flow-on effect to the opportunities for stationary storage, which makes us think the lithium-ion batteries in their different chemistry configurations are a particularly disruptive uh, technology because they get to scale and because they become commercially viable. And in terms of manufacturing, this is the picture today, 131 gigawatt hours of manufacturing. We can see that 60% um, you know, of that is in China, the bulk is in Asia. We push forward just two years, three years, and that number triples, and more of it is in Asia. And for those of you who uh, have been playing the energy game a long time, not so long ago, this was a similar sort of picture we were seeing in China with PV. And the pressure that came on the European and the US manufacturers as a result of the China, China's scale up in PV manufacturing has essentially made it an Asia manufacturing market. And we think they're gonna try and do the same thing or are doing the same thing with batteries. China is the only, only country um, that has a really specific battery uh, manufacturing policy. The consolidation, the forced consolidation of that industry is creating national champions and they have the biggest EV market in the world um, by a considerable margin uh, with, with policies to assist in the deployment uh, of those types of vehicles, such that we think batteries are gonna follow this curve down for some time to come. So what do batteries do? Well, in the stationary storage environment, they can replace a peaker plant. So if you have a narrow peak in your demand profile and you need to be able to move energy around from one time to another, um, if that peak is narrow enough, a battery could be competitive. Now, the thing about batteries is that as they get bigger, they get more expensive and to discharge longer, they've got to get bigger. So the bigger your peak or the longer you need to discharge for, the more expensive a battery is, the less economic it is. 
And we can see on this chart, that is, which is a way of showing that, that as you shave the peak off, at some point batteries become less competitive, even if they start off being competitive at a certain um, global price point. So this is a picture for Germany. And I apologize, there's a few Germany pictures, there's a few Australia pictures later. There are some US pictures as well, but uh, we're trying to pick some good examples to illustrate um, these dynamics. This is Germany. And you can see today that there is a spread of costs based on the size of the battery. A one hour battery versus a four hour, you've got an eight hour batteries and these things get really expensive and far out of the money. But if I'm choosing whether to build a Pika gas plant, OCGT or a reciprocating engine, or put a battery in for a narrow peak, today we think in Germany it makes sense to put a battery in for that narrow peak. Now, Germany's not a great example in this case, it turns out, because Germany's heavily oversupplied, there's more capacity than they know what to do with. Um, a lot of the, the peaking uh, func uh, function in the market is being done by combined cycle gas turbine uh, plants, so baseload gas plants that are just running at low capacity factors, but these are what the economics suggest. So when we push forward a bit and Germany does need new capacity for this, we think batteries are gonna be able to play a role. We can also look at batteries in the same way as we looked at generation. And if we think that the cost is gonna come down, there'll be a point in when batteries get cheap enough that they can do more than just shave a few you know, hours of peak. And we try to look at two tipping points in the role of batteries as providing dispatchability. So in other words, in a market sense, we're talking about arbitrage. Um, in a non-market sense, we're talking about load shifting in a more material bulk energy way. And this is the picture we can paint for Australia, which is just another good illustration of this, this dynamic. The grey line and the black line are the new build LCOE prices for coal and gas in Australia. The gas line goes up partly due to, due to prices, uh, partly, I say mostly due to utilisation and how much gas is used in Australia, which is a lot of coal and renewables are coming on. But you can see the sweep of battery prices from today into the future. And right now, it's clear that if you want a, a, a megawatt hour of dispatchable electricity, so that's some time when you, the renewables are not available, maybe it's an evening peak when solar is not available, you're going to build a gas plant or a coal plant in Australia, and probably a gas plant because coal is, has got some problems um, politically. You're probably going to build a gas plant. But you push forward in time, and first the one-hour batteries, then the two-hour, then the four-hour, et cetera, start to become competitive on a new build basis. So for example, as the coal fleet starts to retire, what do you replace it with? Well, maybe you start to replace it with batteries or renewables plus batteries. And that's what this second picture shows. If today I wanted to um, engineer a unit of dispatchable energy using renewables and batteries, I would need to build a PV plant, say, that PV plant would essentially be my fuel price for my battery, my charging price. I could charge it from that PV plant. And then I would discharge, um, say, uh, in the evening time sometime when otherwise would have to be running a coal plant or a gas plant. And these numbers look, these charts look a little similar, partly because on the left-hand side we've assumed that we're charging the battery from the market and we've made an assumption about charging costs. And on the right-hand side we're building a PV plant, these are charging costs. And over time, the PV gets cheaper and cheaper, so your charging costs get lower and lower on the right-hand side. And also, on the left-hand side, your, your, your costs get lower and lower because the more renewables you have over time, the more zero marginal cost uh, generation you have, the lower the price you can potentially charge your battery for. So in the long run, it all starts to trend towards very low prices indeed for charging. 
Yes, there's a second tipping point, and it's the same logic as before. When does it get cheaper to build a battery or a combined battery renewable system than to operate the existing fleet? And I'm going to use Australia again because it shows two things happening. One is that operating, operational coal is cheap, and where it is cheap, and the US, you could replace that line with operational gas, it's really hard out to 2050, for, in our minds, for batteries to start to eat into that market preferentially. So in other words, it gets cheaper to build a battery than to run the plant you've already got. But for other technologies, it could be competitive. So the Australia case here, we're saying that on the left-hand side, putting a battery in and essentially load shifting um, at any time uh, could be cheaper than running a CCGT in Australia by the mid-2020s. And on the right-hand side chart, it takes a lot longer to cross in terms of you build a PV plant and a battery, so you've got a dispatchable renewables unit. It also starts to cross, but much later on. So when we're thinking about batteries and renewables, I think we could probably say that if we have cheap batteries, it means that we're increasingly going to be able to have wind and solar when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, but they can't replace everything. The, the fuller suite of things like batteries, what we call flexible capacity, also includes pumped hydro. Um, it includes demand response, and it includes peaker gas plants. Dedicated flexible capacity in the outlook grows by about eight and a half times out to 2050. Um, and it makes up, in a lot of countries, it's around 20% of the mix. And that's not so different from today, actually. Um, depending on what you include. Uh, but it does rise over time, in line with growing renewables and variable generation sources um, in the market. So now, having introduced peaker gas, let's talk about gas in a bit more detail. And the a high-level conclusion here is for gas, it's about value, not volume. I broke my animation there, but I'll put, I'll put both charts out together. The left-hand chart here is showing reduction in capacity factors that emerge from our modeling for CCGD plants, so that's base load, no, always running gas plants around the world. And what we're seeing is that today they're not running at 75% even, what they say on the packet. They're running between 40, 60%, even lower in some place. India is a fuel supply problem, so it's very low. But over time, these numbers trend down or stay flat such that by 2030, 2040, 2050, more and more CCGTs are running at 30 to 40% capacity factor. And it turns out that in the UK as an example, it's one country example, but it's a decent benchmark, 36% capacity factor is the magic number where it gets cheaper to build a low efficiency open cycle gas plant because your run hours are low than to build the big CCGT gas plant. And so, Flexibility, which is really necessary in a high renewable system, is partly supplied by CCGT that are there today or are being built currently, um, running at low capacity factor. So they're not running at full bore, they're running at low capacity factor, and a whole bunch of new smaller gas units that are really well suited to complement the variable renewables and batteries that we think are going to come online. And this is the capacity build out. CCGT stays pretty flat. The capacity is necessary in many markets. We don't want to retire this capacity because there are periods when renewables and batteries can't meet demand. But actually, what we really need is small, flexible units 
that can ramp up and ramp down and complement those cheap renewables. And at a system cost level, this is a much cheaper configuration than having big plant that are running much less. And overall, this is the gas um, demand profile. Um, that's a uh, roughly, I think about a 6% increase in, um, in gas demand to 2050. So this is not a market we don't think for, for gas to win. It's for gas to play a, a valuable role but if you're selling molecules, this is not a pretty story. This is not a growth story. And if the electricity sector is 40% of total gas demand, this is a story that is probably not going to excite you very much. If you own a gas plant, however, what you do in the electricity system should be very valuable. So there are some, uh, some complicated stories for what this means, I think, uh, for, for different players in the market. And let's just finish off the, the section on gas with a look at the US. This is the US picture. Um, and generation out to 2050. Uh, it's 55% renewables by 2050. That's actually relatively low by world standards by 2050. Um, uh, in Europe, for example, the numbers are 60, 70, 80% uh, variable renewables. Here we got 55%. And the reason for that is that we have a lot of gas that comes online in the 2020s. And the reason we think that happens is because a lot of coal plants retire and they're not replaced as coal plants, they're replaced as a combination of renewables and gas. And the firm capacity that coal currently provides in the 2020s, batteries are not cheap enough yet to do. We lock in a whole bunch of gas that then batteries can't push out this side of 2050. If we did our outlook all the way to 2100, maybe those gas plants might start to have their economics undermined by batteries, but we haven't gone out that far this year. As nuclear comes out, though, in the 2030s, we think more of that capacity is replaceable by batteries and renewables. But again, not all. And we'll come on to that. Uh, we'll come on to that shortly. So let's change tack a little bit and talk about consumers because part of the new energy outlook since we started it was to recognise that consumers are going to play an increasingly important role in the electricity system. We already see that happening um, around the world. It was the, sort of the solar boom in Europe in 2011 was a consumer PV boom as much as it was a large-scale solar boom. Uh, and understanding the economics of what consumers do is very different from large-scale plant. So when we're thinking about consumer uptake, whether it's for electric vehicles or for PV or PV plus batteries or anything else really, we've got to think about the economics, what's the cost of people making these decisions, but we've also got to think about how consumers make decisions and the differences between businesses and households. And when you think about how you make decisions, do you make decisions with a spreadsheet every time you make a decision about what to buy and when to do it? Or do you look around the world and think, ah, oh, that seems like a good idea. I saw Bob and Michelle have put PV on their roof. They're smart people. I'm going to look into it too, and you do it as well. And maybe the reason we all have smartphones is not because we did a cost-benefit analysis of their role in our lives. And if we did, we probably all wouldn't have them. It's because heaps of people got them, and it seemed useful. So the, that, the imperfect decision-making is what we need to try and capture in consumer uptake modeling. And that's what we do with small-scale PV. But the first thing we need to do is look at the economics, because there is some relationship between cost and uptake. And this is a picture that we can draw that helps us to try and understand that. And this is, again, stripped out of any policy incentives, net metering, or any, um, uh, any type of support for small-scale PV, which has received an epic amount of support worldwide to, to, point, to this point. We can draw a chart that um, divides the world into 
something that is at socket parity and something that's not. And socket parity is our way of saying, and I think this is pretty well recognised in the literature and, and in the industry, is when the cost of putting PV on your roof, or PV and batteries, if we go there, um, uh, makes sense in terms of the value it can provide. And that value is a function of how well it can displace what you would otherwise pay for electricity. So this chart shows socket parity for residential PV with 35% on-site consumption. And if you think about it, most of us aren't home during the day. We have some load during the day, but actually it's at either end of the day where we have electricity demand. And if solar's during the day, we're not home at night time, maybe our consumption's really, really low. And in the absence of net metering or something that pays for every kilowatt hour we produce, this doesn't make sense at all. And maybe that's the picture I've got here. But the point is, is that over time, as solar gets cheaper, all those dots move to the left. Because to the left is cheaper solar. And depending on the tariff structures that we might imagine, the value that solar can provide might change as well. So for Europe, for example, we say the value actually goes down. And the reason for that is that we expect tariff reform to move more of your residential electricity bill to the fixed component away from the variable component of that bill, in part to pay for the poles and wires. How much that actually happens in practice is a complicated political question because moving rates around like that um, is not straightforward. And utilities who are already unpopular aren't that keen on doing it, to be honest, but they also need to be able to pay for themselves. The right-hand side chart um, shows a world where more and more people are going to be putting solar on their roofs because it just makes sense to do unless they're stopped doing it by regulation or some other change in the market that makes the value from solar go away, which could happen. More interesting, though, is commercial, commercial facilities. That's a shopping mall, that's a factory, it could be a small business, but the point is they can use much more of the electricity they produce. So in the absence of policy to pay for every kilowatt hour, if you're running a business during daylight hours during the week, your on-site consumption could be 70%, assuming you're not running on the weekend. And that means that using that much more of the, uh, of, of the solar that you're producing, you can, you can displace uh, more of your bills, the value goes up, and more dots today are above that line. And by 2035, everything's above that line. So this is an important part of the, our story, not because by 2050 the entire electricity system is distributed and everyone's running off their own PV, it's because even if we're talking about globally sort of PV numbers in the single to low double digits, this eats into grid demand, and if you're a utility, trying to work out how demand is going to grow, this is pushing in the opposite direction to electric vehicles, to any other electrification thesis you might have. And speaking of electrification theses, theses um, electric vehicles and air conditioning, um, we think they're part of a set of new sources of demand that actually are beneficial for renewables rather than um, a hindrance. So let's start with electric vehicles. Um, you may know a month ago we published our uh, electric vehicle outlook, which goes to 2040. Um, these are some of the headline numbers. 55% um, of new vehicle sales by 2040. Uh, and that equates to about 2,000 terawatt hours of new electricity generation around the world um, by 2040. And there is a real geographical split between where we think EVs make a lot of sense and where they make less sense. Um, and uh, you can kind of see the big role of China there. So this adds electricity demand in a meaningful way in some countries. So for Germany, for example, we think in 2050, 24% of electricity demand is electric vehicles. Um, in the US, I think we're 
around 12%, must check that number, but it's, it's a lot lower, even though we see a lot of electric vehicles come into the US market. But as important as how much electricity demand there is, is when those cars are gonna charge. And the way we think about it, and this is an assumption, this is not coming out of the modeling, this is something we put in, we think that maybe it's fair to say that by 2040, 50% of the EVs in the world can charge whenever they're plugged in at a time that makes the most economic sense. So they can dynamically charge. So we're not relying on people to come home from work, plug in their cars all at once, and that 24% of electricity demand in Germany just skyrockets and breaks the distribution grid. We think increasingly, and we're already seeing it, that time of use tariffs will enable people to charge when it makes the most sense for the system and the most sense for them. And that in the future, if they drive to work, will they be able to do that at work? We think probably increasingly they will. And if they can, then we expect more demand to move during the middle of the day when less cars are used, when electricity is potentially cheaper because you've got a lot of solar running. So this is a picture for California in 2040, and you can see the change in the load profile associated with EVs and when they charge. We anticipate quite a lot of EVs in California, even if the US total isn't, isn't as high. So this is one source of flexible demand, and, and maybe you can think of lots of others in terms of time of use tariffs and different loads that could move around. We haven't captured all of them, but we anticipate that this will do a couple of things. One, it will start to flatten the, 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 the gross load profiles, so you'll get less peaky profiles. But secondly, beyond that, we, we're gonna see um, them reflect the availability of cheap generation. And cheap generation means wind and solar, and mostly solar uh, for somewhere like California. The other thing we look at in terms of demand is new sources of demand, and one of them is air conditioning. This is particularly important for Southeast Asia, India. Um, this is a picture for Mexico today, or in 2017, and in 2040. And when people add air conditioning, they're generally running it during the day, particularly in commercial operations. Households may turn it on and off at different ends, but similar to the PV story, um, businesses are going to be running their, their air conditioning during the day, and that creates a bubble during the day, which is perfectly placed for PV to help supply that load, which enables PV uh, to go deeper. Hence our thesis that we think renewables are helped by uh, some of these new sources of demand. And to give you a sense of how that might look, again, this is an Australia example. This is, uh, in 2020, the uh, daily demand profile, median summer day for the, the NAM, the National Electricity Market on the East Coast, uh, and this is how much PV we think is generating. By 2030, the PV and the demand profile have started to sink. And by 2040, as much as possible as we've been able to model, of the, of the movable load starts to want to, wants, wants to be there during the day to tap into this um, cheap uh, PV that's available. So we're almost through. But I think that the question remains is, okay, if all these technologies are getting cheaper and they're gonna be in the system, how does this all fit together? How, does, how do we map all this supply to demand on a daily basis? And what about those extremes I was talking about in terms of when batteries really can't uh, do much? What does that picture look like? Because our case is that sort of round the clock fossil fuel plants supported by peakers is a model of the old world, and the new world is a model where we have cheap variable renewables with some large conventional plant running at low capacity factors, 
plus batteries and other sources of new flexibility, including peaking gas. And that configuration is characterized by PV in many ways. So this is a picture for 2020. It's a German day, typical spring day. And we picked a different day or a different season. This picture would look different. The configuration here would look different because you have different amounts of wind or solar available. Um, and even if we push forward to 2025, the nukes go away because that's a German policy by 2023 to get rid of their nuclear uh, fleet, which is bad for their emissions. Um, but uh, if we push this picture forward, By 2035, we can see we're charging and discharging a heap of batteries in spring, running a bunch of wind, but we've still got, on a daily basis, typically, a, a lot of dispatchable, this is coal and gas, primarily, uh, in Germany. 2040, we start to see curtailment. The 2050 picture, I would hope that some of you look at that and go, that looks ridiculous. You're wasting all that electricity. No one's going to build a plant to do that. Um, you know, these you know, dispatchable units having to ramp up really quickly. This doesn't look like a picture that we're very comfortable with. The point we want to make with this is that this is just one configuration and one typical day at one point in the year. But the economics are still least cost. It's still least cost to have a whole bunch of renewables curtailment when your renewables are really cheap. If your renewables are $20 a megawatt hour, and the alternative technologies are $50 plus. You can curtail a bunch of that and it'd still be the cheapest thing. And maybe if you're a project developer and you're thinking, I'm a PV plant, I'm gonna be running at 23% capacity factor by 2050, say, and that's gonna be great. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're gonna be running on average a bit lower than that, but maybe still you make money and, or at least you are the least cost option for the system and you will make money if the price signals and the price formation is there. In the same way as today, people are investing in a gas plant, maybe hoping that it runs at 75%, but knowing it may run at just 50%, depending on what the stack looks like over time. So curtailment, we think, is a thing, and also backup. And let me show you a couple more charts to try and illustrate that and why we think that's still a least cost configuration. So take that renewables day and turn it into a high renewables week. This is a high renewables week for 2035, and we've taken these high renewables um, periods by looking at weather over the last five years. Do we assume that weather isn't gonna change much in the future, which is a, probably a bad assumption, but it's a decent assumption. And if we have a high renewables week in Germany, and this is just a, a high renewables week, um, it's probably winter, autumn, with all that wind blowing, um, we see a, a lot of curtailment. So we're burning a lot of cheap renewables at this point, which is not, are not really doing much in the system. But at other times of the year, it looks like that. And this is in 2035, when Germany has a lot of wind and solar. So even a little bit running gives you a decent amount of generation. And the point is, you combine this on average over the year, and between the low renewables days, weeks, and months, and the high renewables days, weeks, and months, provided you have enough firm capacity to meet these low renewables periods in your system as backup, those peaky gas plants, on top of the batteries and the renewables, then you can have a least cost system. It's just that things don't run at full capacity. And if they do run at full capacity, maybe they don't get paid for all that. So this is a, poses, a, I think, a significant challenge to how we think about price formation, because this is a very different world than base load and peak and returns that are uh, able to be understood through high generation hours and peak pricing. 
So let's get on to coal. I know that coal is a, a topic of quite some interest in the US at the moment. Um, in the rest of the world, this is a very uncontroversial conclusion. Coal is the biggest loser. Um, and it's simply because coal plants, as they retire, if they're not forced out by cheap renewables in some places they are, they're just not replaced because they're not as cost effective on a bulk electricity basis as renewables and they're not flexible enough to match the renewables. It's the same problem that nuclear has in the current sort of fleet of large nuclear plants. Maybe we have small reactors that can be more flexible, that could be a different story. This is the picture for coal. We think um, it drops by about 57%. Today, it's 38% it's of global electricity generation is coal. That drops to 11% uh, in, um, in 2050. The configuration in terms of where the coal is burnt doesn't change much, but you'll notice the Americas shrinks a lot. That's a US story primarily, and Europe continues to, to shrink, and everything else is kind of holding um, some part of that pie. But if we look region by region, this is what we see. Europe and Americas continue their decline in the amount of coal that we think is being used. That's a function of flattish demand profiles, cheap renewables, and in the US particularly cheap gas. In other parts of the world, we have a pipeline of coal build that we take into account, even though we keep shaving it every year as more plants uh, um, uh, leave that pipeline, um, as they don't think they have an economic case. But this is a picture where coal consumption in China peaks in 2030, where coal consumption in India peaks in 2033, um, and where coal has almost gone from Europe and the, and, the, and the US. And I think the other nice fact there is by 2033, there's more wind and solar electricity in the world than coal, which is a rapid turnaround from how electricity systems um, have operated uh, in the most recent uh, phase of history. So moving on from coal is our emissions conclusion this year. And again, for those of you who have seen our previous outlooks, the high-level conclusion is all this change stops us from going in the wrong direction in terms of climate, but it doesn't get us anywhere near a two-degree trajectory. And if the power sector is the low-hanging fruit for decarbonisation, this is a pretty painful picture because it seems to be more expensive and more difficult to reduce emissions elsewhere. So what we thought was, rather than just say that again, we would do a little scenario analysis and see, well, what, what would happen? How close would we get if we retired all the coal plants in the world by 2035? So we just ran a very simple scenario and said, between 2025 and 2035, we, we, we retire every megawatt of coal, such that by 2035, coal is gone from the world energy mix. And this is what happens. We get a lot more gas. 73% of the void that coal leaves is filled by gas. The reason for that is that when we create the void, gas is the cheapest firm capacity. Batteries are not quite cheap enough to take a bulk of this. If we'd done it later, we may have got more batteries, which is potentially a perverse outcome of the timing of technology cost declines and, and, and policy interventions, but we'll, we could discuss that in questions. We also get more renewables and more batteries. But is this a world that gets us close to two degrees? Um, the answer is very simply, gets us closer but not close enough. So the thesis that we should fuel switch from coal to gas as a solution to climate change has a very short shelf life. If we can actually engineer everyone getting off coal by 2035 worldwide, which I very much doubt it, if we could do that, it would get us a long way to a two degree trajectory. This is 54% uh, below our Neo 2018 emissions trajectory by 
uh, by 2035. Um, but it's still a long way to go. And the problem is you can't keep decarbonising with, with gas unless you can uh, um, sequester the emissions or find some other way to make it lower carbon. So our conclusion is that if we want to get to a two degree trajectory or beyond to a one and a half degree trajectory or even to decarbonise the electricity system um, more aggressively so that we have some buffer for agriculture and heavy industry and things that are more difficult to decarbonise, we need to find something that looks like gas, that can behave like gas, that isn't gas in terms of its emissions profile, such that we can um, meet our seasonal extremes that can complement wind and solar and batteries um, and get us a little closer uh, to that line. And the final point on this would really be that um, if we did do this and we somehow incentivised a bunch of investors to build gas plants and with the objective of meeting two degrees, knowing that it wouldn't get us all the way there and that they'd have to decarbonise that gas at some point, A, would we get anyone to do it? Probably not. But if we did, we'd probably have to lock in those assets for their lifetime to get the investment in the first place, which would lock us into that purple line. Um, in terms of the policy support we might envisage uh, to make that transition. So gas is, a, is maybe part of a solution, but it is not the solution to, uh, to decarbonising the electricity system uh, worldwide. So that's the end of my key messages. Um, uh, I hope there's been some interesting new bits for those who've seen our outlook before, and for those who haven't, I hope all of it's new and interesting. Um, and thank you very much for coming again, and I think we've got time uh, now for questions. Thanks. Seb, thanks. Um, I think it was fair to characterize this as both surprising, perhaps intimidating. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm intimidated, but I am surprised. Um, I'm going to take my prerogative just to ask one or two quick questions to get us going before turning to the audience. Uh, one is a more micro, one is a more macro. Um, the micro question is, you told us what the price of a battery pack was today. And you spoke a lot about the role of storage into the future, but you didn't tell us what the price of a battery is going to look like into the future. So I'm kind of curious about what that little tidbit looks like, what's, what's in the model, and how you guys see that evolving. So, so I didn't show that. And actually, I could have shown that chart instead of just the columns, because mm -hmm. um, uh, we have, and I know I wish I did. Uh, but um, those data points from 2010 to today uh, create about an 18% experience right. curve. So when we think about manufacturing capacity coming online over the next period of time and beyond, and we can use our outlook maybe to help inform that, we can start to get a, you know, that circular logic of volume and, and, and price um, pulling, down, um, uh, pulling down the price of batteries. Um, I'm going to look at Ethan and tell, ask him, who's my colleague um, here in the US, to correct me if, I, if we're wrong, but I think we breach $100 a kilowatt hour um, in, um, in 2025, and we uh, buy, uh, sorry, by 2030, and by 2040, I think it's about $73 right. a kilowatt hour. Um, give or take, please check those numbers uh, in the actual report, but that's the sort of scale. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. From today. Several of us are going to be interested in that number. Um, my, my more macro question is, it's actually some of your, uh, your later, uh, some of your later exhibits speaking about curtailment and so on. So obviously the thesis within the outlook um, builds upon the fact that we see these declining costs in technologies, wind and solar, storage and so on. They're being deployed, etc. Um, 
but they depend on, of course, I assume, the growth in their markets for driving some of that cost reduction. And where I begin to see some kind of, you know, dislocation, at least from my point of view, is when you begin to see this picture with much more curtailment coming in, are investors really going to be, I would imagine you could curtail it if it was there, but are investors looking prospectively at a situation where their assets might be seeing a lot of curtailment? Will they be willing to make that investment? And you know, will we actually be able to get onto this virtuous circle of added capacity, lower costs, and so on? That's critical to kind of take us to, the, uh, to that kind of capacity picture. Yeah, well, you touch upon uh, the, the great question that emerges from this, which is that this may be a, le a least cost configuration. And I say a least cost because there might be something that is actually a global minimum that we haven't quite put together here, but um, a least cost configuration. But how's anyone going to get paid to do any of this? Right. And I think that is the question that increasingly everybody who's thinking about electricity is going to be thinking about. Um, we've got a, a group of people at BNEF who are sort of dedicated to thinking about market design and price formation, because this is already an issue in Europe. Um, and you know, the UK is a, a nice example. Uh, the wholesale market either wasn't providing the price signal or the volatility was too much for investors in the private right. sector. And so there was a security of su supply risk. Um, they went to uh, the, the academia and they came up with a capacity market to pay for that capacity to be there and to get the investment signal for I did, it, initially it was gas plants, right. and now they're broadening it out to be more technology agnostic. So the question of will investors make these decisions is a bigger one than just about uh, the batteries case, because I think in the same way as we can paint a picture where um, uh, uh, renewables are curtailed, where people are having to make a call on whether a battery makes sense or not in the market, um, is a more fundamental point that zero marginal cost technologies running in a, um, in a market that prices based on short run marginal cost um, is increasingly going to cannibalize its own price signal. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we take this capacity and we put it in our price forecasting models and we look forward in terms of actual dollar per megawatt hour annual average prices, you get this, this split where the gas plants and, the, and the, the firm capacity that's available on demand gets paid much better to be there than the renewables, which are, when they're running, are increasingly eating away at their revenue streams. Yep. And if you get enough of it, you end up asking the question is, and we're getting this question today from utilities in Europe, yep. at the end of my, my fixed tariff period from my feed-in tariff or whatever my subsidy program was, is the government going to back my asset? Yep. Because I can see the prices in the market and I've done my modelling and it's not going to pay for itself um, and I'm going to be in distress. And they know that the European governments uh, let the thermal assets go belly up, and now they're thinking, well, is that going to happen to the renewable assets, or is this on message enough that we're going to get the support, right. or the market reform, yep. or whatever the price you know, uh, innovation is that, that helps us uh, to do that. So I think that's the, bigger, that's the bigger question, and I think it falls in the question of curtailment and whether people would make that investment. I think if the price signal was there that valued, say, a solar plant, even though it was being curtailed, and it was the, the best option for meeting what the system needed, then I think people could make that decision, provided the volatility wasn't crazy, provided all the things that allow the private sector to make investments are still 
um, satisfied. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's clearly a huge issue and it's that compelling combination of not just the technology, which I really, you know, do believe we can get to the, some of those numbers, but that kind of combination of that, the regulatory paradigm, the market design and so on. Um, let me turn to the audience and I'm going to take a few questions. What I'd like to do is I'm going to take three questions. Um, together and then we'll have uh, Seb uh, respond to them. Um, so we'll start with you, sir. You need to use the microphone first though because um, we have some colleagues who are viewing us online. Hi, Frank. Um, Seb, can you touch on uh, nuclear power a little bit for us? That'd be great. So that's nuclear power. Very good. Um, this lady here. Yeah. Hi, Debbie Stein at Carnegie Mellon. Um, do you ever go back and do retrospective analysis to see how good your projections are? Never. It's a terrible idea. Uh, and then just jump in. I'll come to you after. Thanks. Michael Copley, reporter with S&P Global. Um, to drill down on your view of uh, future competition between renewables and batteries and existing natural gas, what would you say to a U.S. utility executive who, who's in the process of building, say, a 1,000 megawatt combined cycle plant, who's weighing the risk uh, that that plant will be uneconomic before the end of its natural life? Yeah, well, there are three good questions. On the last one, can I just, the, the, can I, just can I, I couldn't hear that well. The question is, what would you say to a, a, a utility executive in the... Okay, I'll start at the beginning because otherwise we'll yep. lose track. Um, so nuclear, in short, we don't see the economics of nuclear for bulk generation being competitive with the technologies I showed. And therefore doing that same sort of analysis isn't very helpful because it just doesn't get built in the modeling. Um, and that's with the current generation. So small modular reactors or a new um, generation of technology, we, don't, we can't see enough of the commercialization trend to that to know that it's going to be a thing. And so it doesn't feature here, but, but it could. It's a, you know, 2050 is a long way away. Um, so the way we deal with nuclear is we also make the assumption that the nuclear industry has geostrategic importance that countries are not going to abandon their nuclear industries, or nuclear um, states are not going to abandon their nuclear industries for power generation. And so we have some click of, of sort of nuclear development over time. And I think that probably ends in about 2040. And beyond that, we, we stop supporting it with hard coding these numbers in. Um, we, we've got an a, a analyst based um, here in the US who helps us to look at the pipeline of nuclear projects and because they have such long lead times, we, it's a bit like large hydro, we can see a lot of what's been planned and make a call on how much we think that's going to come to market um, and, and understand the trend of why that is and then maybe we can, we, we can project that forward a little bit. And one of the changes from this year, from last year, is the amount of nuclear we, <coughs> we think is going to come online in China is less. 
And as a result of that, we have more coal burn and, and, and more emissions coming out of China. So nuclear, um, whether it's the European phase-out programs um, in France and Germany, um, whether it's uh, what China decides to do and even the Middle East decides to do with nuclear, like has a, just a massive effect on, um, on, on coal demand and, and emissions. Uh, but it's, it's a pretty clunky way we get nuclear in because the economic engine that we have doesn't, doesn't like it. Um, but we think it will still be there. Retrospective analysis. Um, <clears throat> we, for this long-term outlook, the retrospectives, are like we, we're not into the long-term to be able to see how well we did. We certainly look year on year and go what's different and why. Um, and in another deck I've got, we can look at our outlook for the last few years and see how things have changed and why and what did the world actually do. Um, one thing we do know is because this exercise is, is focused on the medium to long term, um, but we have teams that are looking at the much shorter term, and so we have a solar outlook without a solar you know, capacity in the world by country out to the, you know, the uh, I think about 2020, we have wind out to about 2024, um, and we can look at that view and perhaps somewhat embarrassingly, but perhaps this is just evidence of the rate of change is we've undershot the amount of solar capacity being put in the market every year we've ever done our forecast. This year might be the first year we, we, we overshoot because of the change, the policy changes in China, which has just been uh, announced, that will significantly reduce the amount of deployment in China this year, we think. Um, but we've always undershot. So we're maybe thought of as the most bullish in terms of these technologies, but we keep getting it wrong on the downside as everyone else is getting it you know, much more wrong in terms of you know, their, their near-term outlooks. So that's what we do do. We haven't tried, um, we haven't tried to, um, for an exercise like this, it, it, it doesn't make that much sense to me to try and be too worried about what this outlook says about how history has actually progressed over the last few years because it's not really the, the, the dynamics that we've built are designed to optimise into the future, not to work out what the market's doing today, tomorrow, um, or 2019 particularly. That's a bit of noise in our, in our signal. Um, and then finally, uh, what would you say to a, a utility executive thinking about it? Well, it would, depend on, it would depend on where they were and what all their inputs looked like. If they were considering doing it, um, Despite this, they must either think they've got a really sort of a, a brand new plant that is more efficient than the rest of the stack, that is going to be at risk um, much later than anything else, that maybe it's one of those plants that is one that is running, providing firm capacity into the future. And even if their the number of megawatt hours they're generating are not as high as you know, they might be able to generate, that from today, it's not such a decline because plants, they're all running, you know, 60% or lower. So maybe if you're running at 40% in the future versus 50% today, that's something you can bake in if you think you're going to be one of the last plants standing because you're the newest and the most efficient and, and, uh, and maybe the most flexible. Um, so I think you could make that decision happily, making a bet on the future, considering these technologies. But if but you certainly wouldn't be making it lightly, and you'd certainly want to be crunching a whole bunch of these numbers and getting your risk analysis um, uh, uh, done with the most up-to-date numbers, because otherwise, if you're relying on things from a few years ago, you're going to miss the, you're going to miss the, uh, uh, the crossovers and, and get your risk all wrong. Just as a follow-up to that particular question, so obviously we have a very kind of diverse regulatory structure here, and some utility executives that are building 
facilities are going to get cost recovery. Um, others, though, who are building plants for more merchant-type markets and so on, they have a very different dynamic in front of them. Have you guys, in terms of your day-to-day -day consultations and so on, do you see this divergence emerging between participants in the markets today, so those that are perhaps more exposed to the, the restructured markets, feeling the pressure of these new technologies coming down upon them more quickly or having a, having a different impact on their decision-making than, let's say, a more traditional vertically integrated utility? I'm not entirely sure how to answer that, but let me say a couple of things and you can tell me how close I get. Um, one is that uh, when you have a lot of renewables in your system, you create volatility that between when renewables are running and when they're not. And uh, as you get more renewables, that gets worse and worse. And so I think the merchant plants, certainly on the conventional side, are taking a bet that they've got upside in the same way as a Traditionally, a peaker plant would look at an air conditioning load in summer and go, there's going to be enough days where this spikes. Right. If my market is liberalised enough that the price can spike, or I'm going to make my money. And actually, small-scale PV has been the biggest detriment to that business model because it's eaten the peaks on a yeah. summer's day. Yeah. Um, so maybe people are making a bet on volatility. Um, there's a lot of merchant plants, renewable merchant plants, happening in the world that like, we, it's very hard to see the business case for. And people are just making a bet that they will make do with, or they will, they will make out okay because the rules are gonna to have to change and they are low carbon and they fulfill you know, right. the requirements of, of, you know, of the system, or the future system, but it's unclear where the price is gonna be. And maybe they're wanting to um, get their foothold in the market and you know, produce something they can't get a PPA for, right. uh, but they still wanna be there and show progress and demonstrate that they are you know, uh, uh, bankable, et cetera. So I think there's, there's probably a whole set of risk-taking that may pay off, may not, on the merchant side. On the um, vertical, um, vertically integrated, or let's just say um, the, those, those firms that have some sort of guaranteed rate of return on what they do are much better protected against this and can be more adventurous. And mm -hmm. so, again, I, I apologise for not using US examples all the time. Um, uh, but in, in Europe, you know, one of the most adventurous utilities is Enel, and they're the most adventurous partly because they're the only European utility who owns all their poles and wires, which are rate-based, right. and that is just guaranteed money. And from that, they can then you know, go to South um, and Latin America and start to acquire businesses there. They can buy tech companies. They yep. can take a big punt on the future in different ways because they're, they're, um, they've got that safety net. Um, and the other sort of European utilities are chopping and changing and, and, and between RWE and EON splitting themselves apart and splitting themselves back together again, they're desperately trying to find configurations um, where they can find value in this future um, because they don't own their poles, they don't own yeah. their rate-based yeah, yeah. um, infrastructure. Uh, so I think that there is uh, having some guaranteed return, whether it's because you own the poles and wires or in the case of um, some sort of guaranteed payment. So the capacity market in the UK provides um, guaranteed payments, which is enough to make the investment case. And that's what it was designed to do. Will we see more of that in the future? I think we've got to think about where the price formation is going to come from that gives the private sector confidence. And a hugely volatile price signal might be great for someone taking some merchant risk on a small plant and, and, and trading it. But I think for bulk electricity, we're going to have to 
find new ways of, 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 um, uh, of providing that certainty and providing prices, and that's why this whole market design question is so, is so big. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn to the, the right of the room here. So all the way over there, yeah, please. Um, I'm Paulina. I'm from a Global Taiwan Institute, and uh, I have a question regarding. Um, well, I noticed that a, a lot of the, uh, the demand for energy comes from East Asia, and considering um, nations that are small but have a ho like high volume of population, so like Taiwan or Japan, um, who are looking to like access energy like away from China, um, and and so they made like great developments in like solar energy and wind energy, but I'm wondering because they don't really necessarily have the land to like sustain themselves um, with those. I'm wondering if like, a, like what other kind of solutions they can seek. And, and also if methane uh, hydrates could be one. So what was that last bit? Um, if methane hydrates is like a possible solution, like R&D and methane. So uh, you? Yeah. Oh, hi, my name is Ruchi Soni from the UN Foundation. Thanks for a great presentation, uh, Seb. My question is really around, I'm curious to, uh, to hear your thoughts on uh, if you've seen some trends around offshore wind. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm right here. Hi, I'm Patricia Loria from the Global CCS Institute, so you can kind of guess where my question might be going. Um, you know, the last point, you know, obviously we're very kind of pro-renewables, but your last point is gas alone can't get us to two degrees. You didn't talk much about bio to CCS. Um, you know, do you see regulatory factors that could make that kind of more attractive going forward? Great. Why don't we take those three? Okay. So, uh, so I think the first part of your question was about small countries with limited land mm -hmm. area for renewables. Um, it, this is a question that comes up every year, and every year when we get our numbers out, we're like, gosh, that seems like a lot. I wonder if they'll fit. Um, and we do some back of the hour calculations, and we've yet to find a country where we think it doesn't fit. Um, this is a lot of capacity, but m where we see all this capacity, there's a lot of land. So I think that it could become a problem. I don't have the numbers on the top of my head. In the report, we, we have a little section uh, uh, section on it. Um, so it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a distant problem rather than near problem, and it may bite, but I, it's not a limiting factor in this, and, and, and maybe in future iterations it, we might need to make it, but we haven't. So for example, we don't model so Taiwan bottom-up. Um, we do model Japan bottom-up, but we do model um, Indonesia, Malaysia, Taiwan, uh, sorry, um, Thailand, um, Philippines bottom-up, uh, and they are we see a bunch of renewables there, but we also see a bunch of coal and fossil fuels and, and local resources. So at the, at the penetrations we get to, which are on the lower side of the global mix, it's n not a problem, we don't think. But we'll, we keep looking at it. Um, and the second part of the question, I, I, I don't know, <laughs> um, which is the, um, the question about uh, methane hydrate. I, I don't know. It's not an area I know much about. I'm sorry. And it's not included in this. The second one was offshore wind. Um, so last year we made a big song and dance about offshore wind because we'd seen costs tumble dramatically um, and we're still, we're still seeing costs come down dramatically. The, the reason it got overshadowed in this year's outlook is because at the same time the more mature renewable technologies, if you want to call them that, of utility scale PV and onshore wind saw an equivalent, a surprising reduction in prices in the market equivalent to the surprise we got for offshore the year before. 
And so when you combine those things into the future, offshore appears, um, and maybe this is part of the answer to the question before, appears in markets where onshore is priced out. So Japan, Korea, um, in particular, we, the wind we get is offshore rather than onshore. Um, uh, you know, China is the biggest offshore wind market, we think, by the early 2020s. Um, Europe, Europe is, is, continues to lead the way, and it's a big part of sort of the Northern European, um, or a meaningful part, not necessarily a big part, meaningful part of the Northern European mixes. Um, and the analysis we do on offshore wind is, is actually more interesting, not in this outlook necessarily, but in terms of the day-to-day -day analysis of how we're getting to the prices we're getting, who's entering that market with offshore capability, and what that means for um, you know, the sort of competitiveness mix. Uh, because offshore wind does feature, if you had to group together renewable technologies in Northern Europe today, offshore wind is sort of price competitive with onshore and PV, because PV is not great in terms of resource. Onshore has got a whole set of like, local problems that uh, great resource, but politics is difficult. And offshore wind is, close enough in terms of cost. So, so we have it in the, in the outlook. Um, I didn't present it here, uh, but we think it plays a, a, an important but still a small role because there's a lot of parts of the world where offshore expertise is difficult, which don't have the right um, um, continental shelf and lots of other impediments, but enough of it to get the cost down to be part of the mix. And CCS, finally. Um, we don't have CCS because we're not, we're essentially not doing an emissions uh, exercise. We, 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 emissions pop out the end, and if we assume no CCS, then that's the emissions profile we, we get. And one of the reasons we assume no CCS is that it's hard for us to see it being globally scaled to be uh, able to deal with power sector emissions. Um, I think we think, though we haven't modeled this out, and this is just my musing, is that you know, heavy industry um, may need CCS a lot more than the power sector needs CCS. Um, and the question of whether we have to get to zero carbon in the power sector is a pretty important one, because that could be really expensive and difficult. Whatever technology suite we use, getting mostly decarbonised might be doable. We might get a 70 or 80% ultimately batteries and renewables, but there's still 20% of the electricity generation that is not so straightforward. Um, uh, so we're going to produce a, a, two, a two degree um, outlook in the second half of the year, maybe one and a half degree, where we are basically going to credit and put an emissions constraint in and let the same modelling platform do its thing. Um, in that, we're going to have to calibrate a set of technologies that provide a solution, because we can't get there with the technologies we've currently got in the model without overbuilding biomass and nuclear. And the reason why I think that most zero emissions power sector outlooks have biomass, nuclear, and CCS in abundance is because they're the only technologies coded into the model to solve the problem. And if you don't believe that we're going to be able to scale biomass, and if you don't believe that large-scale nuclear fits with renewables, and if you can't see the progress in CCS, it leaves a big hole. And hopefully we can shed some light on the sorts of things that that hole looks like, even if we can't say what it should be um, in the latter half of the year. Um, so CCS may be necessary if we want to decarbonise that last 20%, but my sense is that it's more important for industry at this point to get down the curve than to do that last bit on power. Um, so I'll take you first, and then I'll come to you guys. Yeah, yeah hi, uh, Bill Eichert, consultant. Question for you. You used um, Australia as your example for the comparison of when battery technology would be cost competitive with CCGT. CG, CG, and I wanted to uh, 
have you unpack that a little bit, maybe talk about a couple of other countries. Um, and the reason for that, Australia's domestic natural gas price, as you probably know, is pretty high because of policies and, and more reflects the Asian market price for gas as opposed to a domestic price, say, comparable to the U.S. So your view of how it varies from country to country, that, that cost competitiveness. You, sir? I'm Bob Iker, Atlantic Council. Um, I'm glad you uh, included the air conditioning in this, this year's effort because I think the demand issues to me are quite uh, important, especially in the emerging and developing countries that are expected to account for most of the growth. Um, and, and my experience too, I mean, in terms of the impact on the peak and changing the peak as you were talking about, what, what do you assume about the efficiency on the air conditioning side because, I mean, countries like Iraq and Algeria are very inefficient uh, air conditioning. That's right. And just this gentleman right in front. Yeah. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. A couple uh, interrelated uh, analytical type questions. How do you look, try to look at co-benefits in decision making? For example, solar on the rooftop and batteries, whether commercial or home, mm -hmm. I'm now displacing the challenges of grid disruption. So my food doesn't waste in the freezer and my business keeps operating. And a second one analytical is when you're when BNF is looking at this, what are some examples of wildcards that you see as possible that would dramatically change something? What are the ones that you play with that you didn't include that you might change the analysis? Great. Can, can I just get that, your question, the first part of it, you said co-benefits in decision making and use sort of rooftop PV. Can you rephrase that? I didn't, I didn't fully well, understand. Well, there are many things that are not the true, just solely the levelized cost of electricity. Right. You know, if I have batteries and solar on, you know, at a home or in a business, I eliminate potentially my grid disruption that has tremendous value. Okay, where you live, the grid doesn't go down. In Washington, D.C., I think I'm at 30 hours already this year at home without power. Mm -hmm. There's value, yeah. right? you know, and, and there are a lot of places in the world um, with doing so. I know a business that, with doing this 20 years ago, ended. They thought they were on a 10-year payback for their solar. They ended up in six months because in a snowstorm, their business has skyrocketed when everybody else was shut down. Yeah, that resiliency and robustness. Yeah. Great. Okay. Okay. So. Um, Struggling to recall all the numbers in the report, um, I, let me talk about your question in terms of um, the, the, the things that determine whether these lines cross, and then it might help answer it. I, I, I defer to the report for the actual uh, numbers per by country and things. But ultimately, those lines cross um, on the on the conventional side as a function of fuel prices and capacity factors. So anywhere where you've got cheap fuel running. For example, in the case where we had Australia, we had essentially um, pretty cheap coal to build, uh, sorry, um, uh, gas and coal new build was, was, was rising and sort of expensive, so things crossed over. But on the existing fleet, we had cheap coal running and gas was a bit more expensive and we had them cross over. I think you could almost flip those lines around or certainly put gas where the coal line is and you'd get a picture for the US. 
because a lot of the on the on the supply on the renewable side, you know, some of these battery and PV prices are, are, are kind of commoditized. The, the price of a PV system shouldn't be so. It is different in the U.S. Um, and why is an interesting question. It's partly to do with the the, um, the support programs, the ITC, um, uh, which incentivizes people to sort of keep prices at a certain level. But if you strip all those out, there's no reason why a PV system um, should be more expensive here than in Germany and Australia. And in fact, we saw, just anecdotally, we saw in Australia um, uh, the cost of PV systems uh, from rooftop suppliers crash when all the subsidies were removed in Australia, well, most of the subsidies were removed, down to German levels, almost exactly. Um, and the US level is still much higher. So there's a, there's a reason to think in the long term they'll equalize. So, so that's a very similar picture wherever we map it in the world, depending on um, some local condition. So the, 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 it differs based on fuel price and capacity factor. Um, so where you've got cheap fuel, you generally, these crossovers happen later. Where you've got more expensive sort of uh, market-based sort of seaborne coal or, or, or LNG, these happen much sooner. Um, and in general, um, it's only places that have anywhere with local supply, cheap local supply, whether it's shoveling you know, coal um, in Australia, you know, mud in Germany, or you know, gas here, you, that's very hard to cross because it's just very cheap to run. So you can, if you think about those factors, it can help sort of in your mind sort of map out what those pictures all look like. Um, but post 2040 batteries, those crossovers get interesting. Um, and post 2030 on the renewables, those uh, crossovers get interesting on the plane renewables in terms of their disruption to the existing asset base. Efficiency on air conditioning, I'd love to be able to answer that question. And I absolutely have no idea what our assumptions were into that air conditioning calculation. It's in the report, in the appendix. We've explained how we've done it. Um, and I, I can have a look at that and talk to you afterwards. But I don't, I, I don't have the assumption uh, to hand of what we've done. And I haven't got the report sitting here to look it up either. So I apologize for that, but I can come back to it. Um, and the final one about co-benefits and wildcards. Let me explain how we do small-scale PV again, just to re reiterate it in brief, and then that will give you an idea of, of what we do think about and what we don't think about, and therefore, if we added more considerations, would that accelerate or decelerate the trends we're seeing? So with small-scale PV, it's a combination of an economic decision and penetration effects. That economic decision is about displacing what you would otherwise pay. What you otherwise pay is set at the sort of standard tariff rate. And yes, there are lots of different tariffs all over the country and there's different tariffs. And we do map this you know, all over say, the US, but in other countries we have one, but there are actually multiple ones. So it's a bit blunt in that respect. Um, and how much value you can get by displacing that. If you have grid outages, um, that would then, I don't think we include that in the modeling. But grid outages, for example, would you would be able to say, I get more value out of my PV system, which would then bring all the payback and all the IRRs closer, and you'd get a, an economic case in the absence of subsidies much earlier. Um, so, so what we do do with behind-the-meter batteries, in particular, is we do say that of the capacity, we, once the capacity has been used as optimally as possible for the household, any residual capacity can be aggregated in the medium and long term and used to provide, used to behave as an aggregate battery. So we do have some, uh, it's not virtual power stations particularly, but it's like that where we've got aggregation and, and utilization and sort of value from uh, 
the equipment that isn't being used by the household. So it gets there because the household makes a decision or the business makes a decision, but actually it can provide benefits to the, to the grid as a whole. Um, so, so I think in conclusion, if we captured grid outages, say for example in this part of the world, um, and did a similar thing around the world, maybe we'd find value that would bring all these numbers a little bit, a little bit further forward. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, where um, we know that solar goes boom when the prices get right f f for a certain amount of penetration. And we're so in the political environment or the, let's just say, the way people think about their electricity. And if you're getting outages, you have a very negative view of your electricity supply. Um, in Australia, and sorry to keep using Australia, I am from Australia, it's top of mind. Um, in Australia is another great example where the electricity system has been so overly politicised that everyone, and on one hand, and the other hand is that retail rates have been going up like crazy, everyone's terrified of a carbon price, and the whole thing is that people are trying to get off their utilities as quickly as possible, even with payback periods that are relatively high. So, so we can see in history some of these co-benefits sort of pricing in, um, and we use those to calibrate our models to understand how it might happen in the future, but we're doing that from our uptake dynamics at a certain price rather than the fundamental sort of economic question of what is your payback period, what is your IRR for a system today or tomorrow. Wildcards, um, ooh, wildcards. We're very careful not to think too much about wildcards because the idea is to only consider technologies that have uh, commercial or have a clear path to commercialization maybe a big wild card that is always there in both directions, whether it's gonna be with us or not, is carbon pricing. The Canada example is a nice, nice one where in our outlook, we have a reasonably aggressive carbon price calculation for Canada. Um, and we now know that Ontario's um, sort of aiming to get out of carbon. And when you do that, it changes the economics of coal in, um, in Canada, um, certainly in parts of Canada. And so there is, that can accelerate or decelerate some of these tipping points with respect to coal and gas, but also with respect to renewables and coal and gas. And I think because that's a very political decision, that feels like a wild card to me because one administration to the next, that can be a great idea or a bad idea, and it can come and go, um, whether that's uh, Waxman Markey in this part of the world or, or the carbon pricing mechanism in Australia or, or you know, Ontario in the Western Climate Initiative. Um, that makes it hard. Yeah. Waxman Markey. <laughs> it feels so long ago. Um, well, listen, uh, um, I think this was, that was a good note to end on, actually. The fact that we have a compelling path forward, potentially, but the politics will really play a huge, huge role. Um, nevertheless, I think this was really a fascinating, fascinating set of remarks, really interested in the perspectives. I'm sure many in the room will feel like, they have different perspectives, but that's fine. Um, you guys bring a great, uh, great product uh, to us all each year with this, and I really thank you so very much. And I'm sure um, the audience would like to join with me, and of course, with Sarah Ladislaw and Lisa in thanking Seb for, for coming here and being with us today. And hopefully you can take a few questions from the audience after as well. Absolutely. All right, great. Thank, thank you so much. You.